During Richard Nixon's presidency, his special counsel was a man who was known as Nixon's hatchet man. He was described as Nixon's hard man, the evil genius of an evil administration. In 1971, he helped author the memo that ended up being known as Nixon's enemies list. It was said that uh, he would walk over his own grandmother if he had to. His name was Charles W. Colson. He's otherwise known as Chuck. President Nixon wrote this about Colson in his memoir. He said his instinct for the political jugular and his ability to get things done made him a lightning rod for my own frustrations. When I complained to Colson, I felt conf confident that something would be done. I was rarely disappointed. When the Watergate scandal was investigated, Colson had to testify before prosecutors 44 times, he said. And eventually, Colson would plead guilty of obstruction of justice and would spend seven months in a federal prison. But as some of you might know, that's not the end of Chuck Colson's story. His story is one of redemption following failure. Failure is what I want to talk about today. It's something that we all have to deal with at different times in our lives. And it's something that I don't think any of us really like to deal with or even talk about sometimes. As I was growing up, I always thought a failure is something bad to avoid. Like you didn't want to get that F on a homework or a test. Like a D was bad, but an F, well, it wasn't an F, so that was better. And then C's get degrees, so that's even better than, than a D. And then it just gets like from there, you're good to go. That reminds me, though, of a letter I read this week that a college student wrote to her parents. Here's what she wrote. Dear Mom and Dad, just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plans. I've fallen in, in love with a guy named Jim. He quit high school after grade 11 to get married. About a year ago, he got a divorce. We've been going steady for two months and plan to get married this fall. Until then, I've decided to move into his apartment, and I think I might be pregnant. At any rate, I dropped out of school last week, although I'd like to finish college sometime in the future. Then on the next page, the letter continues. Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I've written so far in this letter is false. None of it is true. But, Mom and Dad, it is true that I got a C-minus in French and flunked my math. <laughs> it is true that I'm going to need some more money for my tuition payments. It seems like a pretty good way to soften the blow, I, I must say. Failure really is a matter of perspective. There are some things that we call failures that really, in the grand scheme of things, they're not that big of a deal. But there are others that have disastrous consequences. So what are we talking about when we talk about failure? Well, the New Oxford Dictionary defines failure as the lack of success or the action or state of not functioning. When we think of failure, we might tend to think of those things that can happen in everyday life. School is a great example of that. Like you have your grading scale, and if you don't achieve a certain percentage, then you know you're going to get a failing grade. But there are also failures in the workplace, right? Like if you don't meet the expectations of your boss or your company, then you're probably not going to be working for that company much longer. Or in money, investments can fail. Goals can fail. I mean, how many times are we excited in January for our New Year's resolutions only for February to come around and then think that we're failures because we have not followed through with our New Year's resolutions? Maybe that one's just me. 
When I worked as a quality assurance supervisor in the plasma donation center, my job was to basically see where there were failures in the process and then work with managers and supervisors to fix and eliminate the future opportunities for failure. The problem with that, though, was that we worked with people and people make mistakes. Yeah, but we, did, we didn't always handle it the best, but most of the time we just wanted to correct the mistake. We wanted to figure out ways to prevent it and then move on. Occasionally, though, people did things intentionally to cause failures, and they did end up losing their jobs. So you got your everyday kind of failure like those things. But honestly, that kind of failure, that can be helpful in your life. When you fail in that way, you see where you need to improve, and then you get to work at trying to improve in those areas. That's why failing in school, while it is not great, it's not the end of the world. Losing money on a failed investment or failing to follow your New Year's resolutions or whatever, they're typically not going to irreparably damage you. But with work, you can see why the failure happened. You can fix it, and then hopefully you come out better on the other side of it. There's a famous quote from Thomas Edison who was asked about taking 100 tries to make a light bulb, and he said, I never once failed at making a light bulb. I just found 99 ways of not making one. In addition to everyday failures, though, there is a group that we might not think about and the world outside of the church definitely doesn't think about, and that is sinful failure. While everyday failure, for the most part, isn't going to mess up your life, sinful failure can and will. Erwin Lutzer, who's a, a former pastor, now he's a speaker and an author, he gives three categories to sinful failure. He says, first, there is pride, then there is covetousness, and then the third is sensual desire. And he pulls all of these from just the fall of man in, in Genesis. The first sin where Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, think about this. Consider Adam. He had literally everything was set up for him to succeed. Lutzer writes, imagine Adam was given a job with explicit instructions, and he could discuss his work with God himself. And he had a wife that was custom made for him, but he failed. So here's how Lutzer defined failure. He says, it's living with perverted values. It's being hooked on one or more of three worldly motivations, of these three worldly motivations. So for a better understanding how this looks, we need to look at Scripture. And there are an untold number of stories of people in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments that have failed. We look at Moses, who he was trying to do something good, but ended up murdering a man, an Egyptian, and then fleeing to spent 40 years out of action. Or we could skip ahead and go to King David who in a time where he was at the peak of his reign, he committed adultery, got a woman pregnant, and ended up giving the order to murder her husband. And there are many others. But the person that I want us to focus on today is the Apostle Peter. Peter was one of the original 12 disciples who followed Jesus traveling with him. He learned from him as he followed him in his three years of earthly ministry and Today, we want to look at Peter's journey with Christ pretty much from beginning to end through four vignettes in his life. These come from a book I recently read in preparation for this message. It's from a pastor named Dominic Smart. So we'll look first to Peter's call to be an apostle. Then we're going to see a time when he had false security 
in his following Jesus. Then we're going to see the point where Peter fails. And finally, we'll see what happens to Peter following Jesus's resurrection. And so we want to start by reading Luke chapter 5, verses uh, 1 through 5. Luke 5, verse 1 says, One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. So our story starts with Jesus teaching a crowd of people by the Sea of Galilee, which is called another name here, the Lake of Gennesaret. As he's teaching, Jesus goes to Simon Peter's boat specifically. He gets in, he sits down, and he continues to teach from the boat. And after he finishes teaching, and Luke doesn't say he's dismissing anybody, as, as he, it just says that he finishes teaching, Jesus tells Peter to go out into the deeper parts of the water and then to let down the nets. And now think about this, like Jesus is not a fisherman, that's not his trade. He was a carpenter, a craftsman. Peter, on the other hand, like fishing is his work, it's his livelihood. It's what he does to put food on the table to support he, he and his family. And it seems like he's got a little business with Zebedee and his sons, John and James. And this is what he knows how to do. Like, this is his life. And we learn from how he answered Jesus that they'd worked hard and they'd not caught anything. And so they're packing up and they're cleaning their nets. And Jesus wants them to go back out. He's like, I don't see the point of this, but okay. But here's what Smart wrote about this encounter. It says, Jesus meets the fishermen, and Simon Peter in particular, at the point of their failure. His wonderful, inspired collision with Simon is right at the point where Peter has experienced something that all of us will experience at some time or another, futile toil. When we think that we've worked hard and it's been all for nothing, when we doubt our competence, for good reasons, there weren't any fish, when we feel a little bit embarrassed, when we may be feeling that we're going into one of those slumps that we sink into, it's right at that point, the point where all our toil seems futile, and we perceive ourselves as failures where Jesus meets Simon and completely transforms his life. Peter says they hadn't caught anything all night, but there must have been something about Jesus that made him say, you know what, because you say so, I'll go, I'll let down the nets. And here's what happens in verses 6 through 11. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. So at his point of failure in his work, Peter meets Jesus. And they go out, and Jesus overflows the net 
with so many fish that the boats start to sink. Peter starts to work in getting the fishes in the boat and gets, calls the other boat over to help. But then something happens where he goes to Jesus. And I think the recognition of who Jesus was compared to who he was kind of hits him. And it hits him hard because he says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. But Jesus says to Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. The call was made to Peter, and Peter followed, and that changed everything for him. And then three years pass. Peter and the other 11 disciples have been following Jesus this whole time. They've been learning from him, seeing him do some amazing, miraculous things. But the time for Jesus' earthly ministry was coming to an end. And ask yourself this, like, if you were one of his followers, how secure do you think you would have felt? How much confidence would you have knowing that you are following the Messiah, God in flesh, I think your confidence level would be through the roof. Like, who's going to stop you? You witnessed so many things, but most recently, like you've witnessed the triumphal entry into Jerusalem where everybody is excited that Jesus is going to take his throne. This promised king that has been promised for thousands of years has come. And so the disciples, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. And then they start having an argument between themselves in Luke 22, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred on one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You can see the pride in this, right? Jesus gives the disciples a little bit of a rebuke here, correcting them and how they should view themselves. It's not in terms of greatness, but in terms of servanthood. And then Jesus turns and focuses on Simon. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he, Simon, replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me, deny three times that you know me. Even though we don't always think about it, there is a spiritual battle going on for the souls of people. And when you're a disciple of Jesus, you're going to be attacked. Peter was sincere in his response to the Lord saying, you know, when Jesus said that Satan wanted to sift all of them as wheat, but there's a word here that shows that he had false security. And that word was I. I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. I am ready. When we have that false sense of security, who we're trusted in? More trusted in us, ourselves. 
I can do this, I'm able to do that, etc. But in a spiritual battle, I don't think that we can trust ourselves to withstand the attack of the enemy. We might do well for a little while, but it's going to crash down around us, as it would for Peter. After this, Jesus goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane and to be strengthened by God for what was about to come. Jesus is arrested and he's taken to the house of the high priest while the disciples fled, but one disciple secretly followed. Verse 54, then seizing him, they, lay, they led him and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. Servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight, and she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you're also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. That's the point of Peter's failure. It's not just that he denies Jesus three times, although that's part of it, but it starts even earlier than that. Because Peter didn't put himself in a great position to begin with. In verse 54, it says that Peter was following at a distance. And as Smart writes, by following at a distance, Peter puts himself in one of the most perilous positions for a disciple of Christ. If Peter had remained close to Jesus, if he had been arrested with Jesus, if he was in there with him, he wouldn't have even had the opportunity to deny him. How difficult it must have been for Peter when the rooster crowed following the third denial. And, and then in verse 61, where Luke writes that Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. That had to be when everything hit him. And what does he do? He goes outside and he bitterly weeps. He's a broken man. He's failed his Lord. And that's the last we see of him until after the resurrection. The Bible's chock full of stories with failures. You read through it, and it's not going to take you long before you come across another story where somebody's failed God. But God himself is gracious, and he continues to use those who have failed. Moses was used by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt toward the promised land. David was forgiven by God, and he was promised that the Messiah would come from his line. Now, there are consequences to failure. We see that with Moses and with David, but God still uses failed people. The same is true for Peter. To see his restoration of Peter, of Jesus' restoration of Peter, we move to John's gospel in John chapter 21. Jesus had appeared to the disciples a few times following his resurrection, and then they had traveled back to Galilee, uh, their home, and one day they went fishing, which, you know, it's what you do when you're a fisherman. 
Jesus appeared to them on the shore and he called out, have you caught any fish? And they answered, no. And he told them, well, throw your net on the other side of the boat and they'd find some. Start sounding a little familiar. And they did. Another large haul of fish. And that's when Peter recognized that it was Jesus who was on the shore and and he didn't even wait. He just jumps into the water and starts swimming about 100 yards, what Scripture says. Everybody else gets in. They eat some breakfast. And then Jesus takes Peter aside. John 21, 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter denied Jesus three times. Three times, Jesus asks Peter here, do you love me? As D.A. Carson writes, there's no trace of self-righteousness in Peter's response. He can only appeal to the fact that the Lord knows everything and therefore knows Peter's heart. And that was enough. Each time Peter says, you know that I love you, Jesus gives Peter a charge, a commission. He says, feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. That's being a pastor. That's, that's what we do. Peter failed, and yet through the grace of God, he is reinstated to that, to being a pastor of his flock, of Jesus' flock. If we hope to overcome failure, we've got to realize that we can't do it on our own. The good news of Jesus is the only thing that will allow us to overcome the times when we failed in our lives. Christ's death on the cross means everything. As Lutzer writes, it repairs the communication between us and God. So following the Father, there's this chasm that opened, separating us from God. That perfect relationship that Adam had was broken. After Jesus died on the cross, as the perfect sacrifice of the chasm was closed... And we are now able to communicate with the Lord directly. Sometimes it feels like we can't come to God because we, we don't do it. You know, we don't want to because of what we've done. Like we continue to fall into the same sins over and over. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, very creative, great book, The Screwtape Letters, he, he describes Satan's strategy as just that. It's, it's getting Christians to become preoccupied with their failures. Because when that's happened, he wins. Because we're not focused on God, we're focused on us. But the debt of your sin has already been paid. The death of Jesus included all of your sins, past, present, future. Colossians 2.13, Paul writes that when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. When we're able to come before the Lord with our sins, we repent, we ask forgiveness. That forgiveness becomes a reality. 
And then God works in you because he doesn't leave you where you're at. He works in you to change you. Again, Luther writes, God intends to change our basic motivations. We need not be controlled by pride, covetousness, or lust. Christ's death did not only make forgiveness possible, it also opens the door to a life of personal freedom from the sins that plague us. But to do that, you've got to face your sins. You've got to see your failures for what they are. But then we go to God with them. And we let God get rid of that root issue, that problem, so that he can forgive, that he will grow you and work with you and change your basic motivations, change your heart. Chuck Colson, he was introduced to Jesus by a man who had just recently started to follow him. And he had never witnessed anybody before, but one evening Colson noticed a change in this man and he commented on it. And the man was very honest. He just said, you know, I met and I started following Jesus. He read Colson a section from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, and the chapter is called The Great Sin. And that sin is pride. And Colson said that he felt that Lewis was just writing it directly about him as he was going through that chapter, as he was listening to it. And Colson left, and he was driving home, but he just couldn't get it out of his head. He had to pull over because he couldn't see through the tears. And he started to follow Jesus that night, becoming a Christian. And not long after, it was when he pleaded guilty to the obstruction of justice charge, and he goes to prison, but he was a changed man. And he ended up starting a prison ministry among many other ministries. And he wrote a number of books and influenced so many lives for Christ until his death in 2012. And honestly, he's still influencing lives today through his works. God met Chuck Colson at a low time in his life. And God still used him in some amazing ways. Jesus met Peter at a point of failure. He was there for Peter's greatest failure, and yet he still reinstated Peter, who would go on to be used by God in more amazing ways before his death. At some point, we've all failed God, and we are likely to do it again. But through the cross of Jesus, God has made a way for our redemption and our improvement. As Paul David Tripp writes, our failure is the workroom God uses in our lives to reform us, to be what we need to be in order to be more successful tools in his hands. If you ever feel as if God can't use you because of your failures, think again. Because he does some pretty amazing things through imperfect people. Maybe today, is the day that you need to ask God to forgive you for some recent failures. Or maybe today is when you need to ask him to use you in ways that you might never have thought was possible. Or maybe today is just the day where you need to make that decision like Chuck Colson did that night and just follow Jesus. And we invite you to do that today. 
Now, right now, we want to take time to remember that precious gift that Jesus gave us on the cross. And so we come to the communion table to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and for me. The bread, his body broken, the juice, his blood spilled for you so that you can be fully restored to God. So I'm going to pray for us, and then um, Kenzie's going to come up and play through uh, as we take our communion. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much that you don't leave us in our failures. Thank you that you meet us in our failures, like you did for Peter. And even if that was just, you know, a simple everyday work failure, you still met Peter then, and then you used him to change everything. And we just thank you, Lord. Thank you so much that you sent Jesus to fix what we broke. Thank you so much that, that we are able to come before you and to remember the sacrifice of the Lord on the cross. But we also remember that he didn't stay there. We celebrate that he was resurrected. And we thank you that he now sits at the right hand, at your right hand, interceding on our behalf, being there for us. Lord, we just love you so much. And there's just not a much more that we can say than thank you. And so, Father, we... We do thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his work on the cross. We thank you that failure is not the end. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.